Hello there and welcome along to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan, thank you for joining me as we search and scour the solar system for the best science secrets that are lurking nearby. This week, we'll meet a man who made his own arm from Lego. It worked, of course, I could grab very light objects like a paper or a small toy, but it wasn't very functional because I couldn't like hold anything relevant in the daily life, you know, so... Also, we'll get in the air with Amy's aviation this week in the series. You can learn how people fly by wire. In front of you, there's a lever called the throttle. Push it forwards. You're going faster now. A check of the aircraft's instruments and the airspeed indicator, and you're ready to take off. And I've got your questions to answer. As always, we do this every week. You can get your science problems solved. This time out, we'll talk about how phones work and how glass is made. So stick around. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. So let's start off with your science in the news. The rocket that will be the first one ever launched into space from the UK has arrived in the UK, not into space just yet. Uh, Virgin Orbit's Launcher 1 arrived in Cornwall down in the coast of the UK a few days ago, was flown over from California, and it's being prepared to blast into space, hopefully next month. Now, we've had a lot of space stories on this show over the last year. People have been trying to get into space. They've not quite made it. Long term, we are trying to get back to the moon and hopefully go from there onwards to Mars. And if we can do it here from the UK, that's brilliant for the country. Also, an otter pup has been rescued after hiding in the engine of a supermarket van. RSPCA officers were called to the supermarket uh, in England and took an hour trying to lure the young pup free with food. They think that the creature was under attack from birds and had to hide for her own safety. I love the fact uh, that these officers, they work to take care of creatures and they were there for, for ages trying to get her free. That's brilliant news. And a woman who lived on an island just off the coast of Scotland almost 2,000 years ago had a diet that has absolutely stumped scientists. You see, before, experts didn't think that people in the Iron Age ate much seafood. Even though there was loads of it around, they were on islands, loads of oceans. But they found that this lady ate almost nothing but fish. They found this out by studying one of her fossilised teeth. Now, you might think, why is it important to learn that a woman from 2,000 years ago ate fish? But it's really important to know what has happened in the past because it helps us deal much better with the future. Let's get another episode with Professor Hallux then. Uh, For the last few weeks, we've been listening to his hydration help desk. Professor Hallux, if you've never met him before, uh, he's a genius. He knows all about your body, what can make you feel sick and also how you get better again. And for the last few weeks, it's all been about water. Now, did you know that tap water is one of the best things to drink to help you stay hydrated? And hopefully you've got tap water where you live right now. And Professor Hallux will take you back to the source to find out where all of it comes from. Hallux's hydration help desk. Call accepted. Hi, Professor. Water's so boring. It's so tasteless. Enough said. Ah, that doesn't sound very good, does it? Now, I admit there are things that taste better than water, fresh raspberries being one of my favourites. 
But whilst you might think water is boring, if you pay close attention to it, you'll be surprised to see that all water doesn't taste the same. You'll even come across people whose job it is to taste water. Why don't you give it a go? Pour some water into a clean glass. The glass should be about a third full. Check that the water is clean by looking at it from above and from the side. Now place the glass under your nose and breathe deeply several times. Can you smell anything? Your sense of smell works better if you close your eyes. Finally, take a mouthful. Move the water around inside your mouth. Stop, wait and swallow. Now pay attention to all the sensations you have in your mouth. Mmm, tastes good, doesn't it? Now try out different glasses wherever you go. A friend's house, a restaurant, a bottle of water from a shop. After a while, you'll develop a taste for water. If you want, you can also give your glass of water a quick twist by simply adding a few leaves of mint or a few slices of citrus fruit, such as lemon or orange. Flavoured ice cubes are also a fun idea. See what different flavours you can create. But remember, don't just add things like squashes, which have a lot of sugar within them. You can also make your water look groovy by serving it in colourful glasses. And remember, water always tastes better when cold. So run the cold tap for a short while before filling your glass. Or leave a jug of water in the fridge or add some ice cubes. Have fun experimenting with your water. Alex's Hydration Health Desk, with support from the Children's Health Fund. Find out more at funkinslive.com slash Halux. It's always good to know that something that can keep you so healthy that is so good for you hopefully uh, is near where you are right now just pouring out of the tap in your home we'll have more from professor hallux next week and his hydration help desk right now let's get into your questions if there's something sciencey that you really want answered on this show you can become a star of the podcast you can get featured exclusively just record your message as a voice note on your phone or your tablet, whatever it is, then send it to us on the free Fun Kids app. Uh, first this week, it's one from Lyndon. Hi, my name is Lyndon. I live in, this, in Seattle, the United States of America. I'm five years old. I don't know how phones work when, when you're calling someone. Thank you for this, Lyndon. Uh, phones work and they talk to each other by sending and receiving radio waves. Uh, radio waves are the longest wave on the electromagnetic spectrum. And all of the waves are on that spectrum, really. They are waves of energy. They fly through the air all the time. And depending on how fast they're moving and how short they are, you might actually be able to see those waves as light. All the different colours are in that spectrum. So these phones are sending waves out in all directions all of the time, like dropping a stone into water and the waves ripple out of it. Now, when you send a text or make a call on these, uh, the waves hit a base station somewhere near you, a big phone mast. Uh, and that takes them and then it sends them out again over a much longer distance using radio waves until it hits another mast near someone that you want to call. Now, this happens instantly because waves move at the speed of light and they're always sending waves to the masts uh, and that checks in with you. So it knows where you are in the world, so it can give you internet, so it can tell if you're on holiday, so it knows who's going to give you the coverage to make the call. Um, that's how it works, Lyndon. It's all to do with radio waves and massive masks. Thank you for the question. Uh, also this week, here's another question. Hi, Danger Stan. My name is Oliver. My question is, how is glass made? 
Thank you for this. Remember, if you do send a question as a voice note over to the Free Fun Kids app, stick your name on it so I can say hello and I can give you a shout out for asking such brilliant questions. So how was glass made then? Glass is made using sand. Would you believe that? It's a mix of sand, lime and soda, which is a type of water. This mixture is heated extremely high and it becomes liquid glass. Then it's rolled out or it's shaped, it's blown and then it's cooled. And that cooling helps make the glass solid and it helps make it see-through, which is what you have today. Now, you can see through glass because the electrons that make it up don't absorb or reflect any light waves. They let them pass right through, which is why glass is transparent. Thank you for the question. Remember, next time, stick your name on it, all right? If you've got something that you want answered on this show next week, you need to send it to me as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. We are hearing an incredible story today. Uh, Chatting to a dude named David Aguilar, who used his brilliant engineering brain to help part of his missing arm. Uh, David, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Dan. Nice to meet you all, guys. Now, before we get into what you invented, tell us about the early part of your life because you were missing part of your arm, weren't you? So just tell us about that. Well, it was hard um, because I was the easy target at school. I mean, I received lots lots and lots of commentaries like, hey, it's not your fault that you were born like this. It's your mother's fault. Or, hey, guy with no arm, can you pass me the the ping pong ball with with your right arm? Or, I don't know, you're just trying to make fun of me, looking at me in a weird way, like if it was an extraterrestrial or something. Uh, sorry, an alien. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, so it was hard. But in the end, what I realized it was because of those comments, I started hiding my condition. I mean, with a long T-shirt, you know, the long sleeves. So I tried to cover my right arm as a way to prevent uh, the comments from, from reaching uh, my ears, you know. So at that moment, I realized that if I was covering my, my, my physical uh, condition, I wouldn't be completely sure who was my friend and who wasn't because sometimes I confused them because uh, they, were, they were making fun of me, but, uh, but the next day they felt like friends, you know? So I started showing my condition, my physical condition to others. I started wearing short sleeves. I wasn't covering my arm with my with my jacket or anything. So I discovered that the people that were uh, closer to me as a friend, um, they they motivated me to keep going with that initiative. Uh, but at the same time, I realized that there was people that really, really didn't care about my condition. That's the best way that I discovered for getting stronger emotionally and prevent those comments from hurting me anymore. So, David, when did you decide that you would build something to uh, fit over the missing part of your arm? When did you start experimenting with things that you could make? Well, I started experimenting when I was nine. I built my first prosthetic out of Lego bricks, the ones that we used to build planes, um, cars, houses, whatever. It was kind of funny because it broke once. I had to use duct tape to fix it in place. It had had like this keychain uh, attached to it so I, it wouldn't fall again. I don't know, it was a funny prosthetic. It worked, of course. I could grab very light objects like a paper or a small toy, but it wasn't very functional because I couldn't like hold anything relevant into daily life, you know? So 
uh, I was nine and I didn't realize it was possible to do so. I just tried my best and, and it looked like any of my other creations, you know, very colorful, um, with duct tape, with a keychain attached to it and some grapples to, to, to grab objects like the ones I said. And how has it changed over the years? I've seen videos of, of what you use now. And I, I mean, it's, it's an incredible bit of kit and feat of engineering. How has the arm changed over the last few years and how have you managed to make it better? Well, it's a completely different model because I spent uh, the rest of uh, my teenage years uh, playing video games and riding bike or, or whatever. I just focused on other things. So when I was 17, I was uh, having a lot of free time from school. So I took advantage of that and decided to build again. Sorry. And um, I uh, destroyed, <laughs> not not um, precisely destroyed, but I dismantled an helicopter that I had on my desk. And I used the bricks to build my new prosthetic. It, it wasn't like a better version of that. It was a completely different model. Because uh, that time I used Lego Technic bricks, the ones that we see to build cranes that work and extend or and have grapples or whatever, you know. So it was uh, very difficult at first because I hadn't had any idea about how to build them. But I tried and tried and tried and, and then I realized that it was possible. So I kept some ideas from the previous prosthetic, uh, like the grapple and the rubber bands to keep the hand closed and all other mechanisms. And I tried looking on the internet if, to see if there was something like an instructions, uh, even if I had to pay for it, I was trying to make something out of uh, those spare bricks. So since there was nothing, I had to search for prosthetic mechanisms, how robots work. I had to look at Terminator pictures to see, or to try to understand how mechanical, how can I be, how can I be more mechanical with the bricks that I had? Um, so it worked perfectly and, and, and now we're here with five different prosthetics. <laughs> so how much design is going into the arm there, David? You, you're doing this research, you're looking up how to make things online. Uh, how are you planning it or are you just kind of improvising as you go? Well, I have to say that I I practiced a lot when I was a kid. I just played every single day after getting from after coming from school uh, uh, in my room. Uh, I can li- I can literally say that I have those ten thousand hours that pianists need to become a piano master. Uh, so I consider myself a Lego master in that way because I spent like you can't imagine how much time. And because of that, I know every single brick, um, the colors that I can use. It's sometimes important because prices um, differ from one color to another. So if I want to make a cheap prosthetic, I need to take that into account, especially for other people, you know. The design process is very simple. I just build around my arm and I just change things on the go if they are uncomfortable by adding more weight on the forearm and I just change that part to become lighter. Um, I don't know. I just change things on the go. And when I finish the prosthetic, I just practice a lot. Uh, I move it around. I try to do like normal people's stuff, <laughs> uh, like, I don't know, opening a door, uh, grabbing a bottle of water. So 
if it works and I'm comfortable with it, I just keep the design and and I post it on my internet, uh, web, uh, social media, sorry. How do you control it, David? This might seem a really silly question, but I've seen videos of you, as you say, opening a bottle of water or opening a door, properly grabbing. How is your brain telling that what to do? I don't really understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's not directly connected to my brain. I'm not that sophisticated. <laughs> I'm not that smart yet. I'm trying to to finish my university career right now. There are ways to connect prosthetics to the brain, actually, but not in the Lego world. Um, in my first four prosthetics, I used a very simple mechanism with my either my shoulder or with my elbow because I have a little small, a very small part on my elbow that I can move. So I took advantage of that. And when I'm building prosthetics, I say, if I have something that moves on my right arm, I can take advantage of that. You know, I cannot skip anything because if I start skipping things and make everything robotic and all that, I wouldn't have that much control over it. So the first one that I designed when I was 17 with Lego Technic uh, was completely mechanical. I could grab objects with my right grapple and I controlled it with the right elbow. So I have like a very small movement, but it was enough to to have st- uh, um, the enough strength uh, to grab a bottle of water, for example, and do a push up at the same ah, time. Okay. And then that last prosthetic that I built uh, two years ago, I believe. Well, it's been a long time. I need to make another one. It had like the new Spike Prime sets from Lego. And I actually used the servos and the motors and the a spike prime hub which can receive orders from uh, uh linear actuators with our uh, sorry not linear actuators they are like push buttons and when i push with my elbow uh, the physical elbow that i was born with uh, i can just move the prosthetic around and it's very light it's very simple uh, i don't need to make a lot of strength with my arm because that was the first problem that i encountered um and it just works perfectly it's incredible Looking into the future, David, you've made yours with Lego right now. In 10, 20 years, um, what would you like your arm to be with how these prosthetics are advancing? Do you see a stage where you will be able to control it with your mind and, and maybe have some like incredible gadget that links to the arm so you could do things that hands and other things can't? Well, it would be incredible to do that with Lego, but uh, in the end, the Lego prosthetics are somehow fragile. I try to make them as hard as possible and as strong as possible, sorry. But if you want a leg prosthetic instead, it's impossible to do with Lego because um, if you start working on like uneven terrain, uh, you can break the foot, for example, and I don't want people to be fixing your their prosthetics every five minutes, you know, it happens the same with the, uh, with the arms or, or the fingers or whatever. So I try to, I will try to have a 3d printer in the near future. Um, I hope it's not 10 years from now, but like, uh, some months from now. And, um, I will try to design uh, hybrid prosthetics out of 3d printing and, and Lego. So that's a cool advance from what I have, but uh the end let's call it the end game of my story i would really want to 
to to start designing things in in hard materials like metal, uh, stainless steel, for example, to make them as strong as possible, to be functional, to be cheap, of course, because nowadays some prosthetics are as expensive as a Lamborghini. I just really want to see how this evolves because um, I'm pretty sure that 10 years from now, uh, we will be seeing people wanting to remove a part of their body to replace it with a mechanical uh, engineered part because that mechanical part has some advantages over our human condition. You know, let's say uh, you want to run faster so you can have implants, you know? And that's something that really interests me because for people that have like um, a back injury and cannot walk or a neck injury and they cannot do anything with their extremities, with their limbs, sorry, it would be incredible to see how they can move their body with a brain implant and some uh, mechanical parts uh, like an exoskeleton to be able to walk again, you know? I do. Well, listen, well, th- thank you so much. If you've enjoyed hearing David's story and how he's managed to I- invent this incredible feat of engineering, uh, he's got a book out. It's called Peace by Peace. You can get it now. David Aguilar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Dan. It was my pleasure. Now, for this week's Dangerous Down, where we look at some of the cruelest and meanest things in the world, in the universe, we're headed down into the ocean to say hello to one of the most brutal beasts down there. But weirdly, it's not poisonous, though. So how does it get you? Let's talk about a creature with a fantastic name, the Titan Triggerfish. They're quite lonely animals just floating about on their own. They sleep all day and they prowl at night. You'll find them floating around the warm oceans near Australia and Thailand. They're brightly coloured, yellows, blues and purples. They've got a massive long head. They're pretty big too. They can grow to almost one metre. Now, they look stunning, but don't get too close because they're vicious, they're aggressive and their teeth, their teeth are massive and thick. They look weird, like chunky human teeth squashed into a fish's mouth. Now, they're not poisonous, toxic to you, but they are aggressive. They attack anything that's nearby, and their teeth are so strong they can bite, rip, and crunch through most things, including human flesh. Which is why the brilliantly named Titan Triggerfish needs to go on our Dangerous Dan list. Let's check in with Amy's Aviation then. Uh, This is our series looking at planes, how they're made, how they take off, and then how they stay in the sky. And we've got an absolute genius to help us out with this. Amy, she knows all about planes. She knows all about aviation. And we've been talking about all the different types of ones over the last few weeks. We've heard about wooden planes, about paper planes. Uh, This week, it's all about how you fly a plane and the difference between mechanical flying and fly-by-wire. Would you like to be able to drive a car? Me too! But you have to be 17 before you can have lessons, so I've got a bit of a wait. But there's something even more cool that you can learn before you're 17. And that's fly a plane! No, I'm not joking! You can take lessons to fly small planes before your 17th birthday. And when you're 17, if you're good enough, you can pilot the plane yourself. I'm not saying it's easy peasy. There's lots to remember when exams to sit, but think of it this way. Maybe you play a musical instrument or know how to do stunts on your skateboard. 
If you think about all the things to learn to be able to do these things, they'd probably look pretty complicated too. Fancy a quick flying lesson? <laughs> Come on, I'll show you. It all starts on the runway. After checking the airfield for hazards and the plane to make sure it's in good working order, the first thing to do is to start the engine. It's just like your mum and dad turning the ignition when they get in the car. There's normally a key that goes in a slot and it's turned to get things moving. Drop clear. To taxi into position on the runway, you move pedals in the direction you want to go and press the tops of the pedals to brake. You need to talk to the airfield's controller to make sure they know where you are and where you want to go. Being able to use the radio correctly is an important part of learning to fly a plane. There's a special language for using the radio which can sound really weird. Roger isn't the pilot's name. It just means... I understand. And Wilco means that you will do exactly what the other person says. Great! You've got permission to take off. In front of you, there's a lever called the throttle. Push it forwards. You're going faster now. A check of the aircraft's instruments and the airspeed indicator, and you're ready to take off. Ease back on the stick, and you're away. you use a stick and pedals that control the rudder. And that's pretty much it. OK, there might be a bit more to learn than that. <laughs> After all, it does take about 45 hours of flying practice before you can sit the exams. <laughs> now, if you did have lessons, you'd learn to fly in a small plane where the pedals and throttle are likely to be mechanically attached to the engine and parts of the plane. As you can imagine, the bigger the plane, the more complicated all those mechanical parts can be. And the bigger the plane, the heavier all those parts are. That's why most modern large planes, certainly the sort that carry passengers, are run on a system called fly-by-wire. <coughs> it's not an actual piece of wire. <laughs> the wire bit is just computers talking to each other. If you had a look in the cockpit of any sort of plane, big or small, whether mechanical or fly-by-wire, many of the instruments would look kind of the same. The flight controls have quite a bit in common too. In all planes, pilots pull back on sticks and throttle levers to control the plane. The big difference is that in fly-by-wire planes, the movements of the flight controls are converted to electronic signals transmitted by flight control computers, not cables and cranks. And because less bulky machinery is needed, the plane is a lot lighter, which helps it to get up and away. Fly-by-wire even allows the plane to do things without the pilot having to tell it to, so it makes his or her job a lot easier and safer. After all, computers don't need to sleep, do they? <sighs> Jumbo jets and large passenger planes need to be in perfect working order all the time. That means a lot of engineers on hand with a lot of tools. Computers help to keep an eye on many of the plane's systems and so makes it easier to know when there's a problem. There's my ride! I'll have to settle for being a passenger for the moment, but one day I'll be in the driving or pilot seat myself. Chucks away! Amy's Aviation, with support from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Find out more about aviation at funkidslive.com forward slash aviation. Thank you so much to Amy with her aviation. She will be back next week on the show because that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. 
if you've enjoyed the podcast and and you want your question answered leave it as a voice note for me on the free fun kids app or at funkidslife.com uh, we've got loads more brilliant series as well you've heard Halix and Amy's Aviation today we've got tons more on Apple, Google, Spotify wherever you get your shows and at funkidslive.com and Fun Kids we are a children's radio station from the UK listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com Thank you.